So let's get into Genesis, shall we? I, I went like 20 minutes over last service, so I got to get moving. You guys ready? Okay, excellent. We're going to talk about Genesis uh, this year, and then we're going to move. Like we got some buffer weeks, because you always need buffer weeks. And why? I don't know. That's why they're called buffer weeks. But uh, eventually we're going to go from Genesis, we're going to go to Revelation. Uh, not Revelations, mind you. Revelation. There's only one. Um, say it with me. Revelation. Okay, good. Uh, so we have, we're going to go from the beginning of the story. We're going to talk about how the story begins, and we're going to talk about how the story ends. And we're going to do that because that's incredibly important to you when it comes to your orthopraxy and your personal theology, how you, what you believe about what this, how the story begins, and what you believe about how the story ends is critically important to shaping how you live today because you live in the middle. So we have, uh, sometimes there's this, idea that, well, who really, I don't know about Genesis 1, and who, I don't, who cares about eschatology, and we have to care, because what we believe about those two things shape everything about how we live today. So we're going to dive into Genesis today. You guys ready? Excellent. Okay. It's good to be back here in Moscow. Yeah. But donuts are back. All right, first service, the applause for both of those was about equal, so my feelings are a little hurt here. Okay, so Genesis, let's start here. We believe the word of God is inspired. Can I get an amen? amen. Okay, now here's what that means. In the literal sense, as the Bible uses the term inspired, the word means God breathed. It means breathed of God. It means that God used human authors and different genres of literature and different situations and personalities to communicate his message, which is what makes this message authoritative yes. and different and unique because it's his message. Does that make sense? Okay, now here's what inspired doesn't necessarily mean. Sometimes we confuse the word inspired with the word accurate. This matters because sometimes God's first primary idea in his God-breathed authoritative message is not to speak to you about accuracy. We understand this when we read poetry. When David in the Psalms says that he spent all night crying and his bed floats in tears, you understand hyperbole. Does that make sense? I haven't met anybody that's thinking like his bed is like, like boy, did he spend all night laugh a little, please. Like, we don't believe that David's like, whoa, it's been a long night. I'm a rocking and a rolling here on my tears. No, like we understand poetry. We understand song of songs. We understand that there are different genres of literature that are used. Prophecy has its own genre of literature, and you have to make sure you're dealing with the appropriate genre when you study prophecy. Try to build systematic theology out of the book of Proverbs. It doesn't work. They're not like Legos. You can't like build things out of them. It's proverbial wisdom. It's a particular genre of literature. So I would say this. I would say genre matters because if it's God-breathed, see, this is why words sometimes like infallible or inerrant are good. We affirm those things. That's true. But they're not always useful. Like how do you talk about that psalm of David's floating bed and use terms like inerrant or infallible to talk about that. Like they kind of fall empty and hollow onto the floor. Like that doesn't, but, but God breathed, 
to say that that psalm comes from God and has something authoritative to say to us, that, that's why genre matters. Because if I'm going to hear the God-breathed message that matters because it's authoritative, I need to make sure I understand the genre of literature that I'm working with. Does that make sense? Okay, so the people of the Bible... Wherever, it doesn't matter where you want to date it, it doesn't matter late date, early date, any of that kind of stuff, the people of the scriptures were familiar with a genre of literature called creation myths. They had creation myths all throughout their, the land that the people of the Bible were from, Mesopotamia, is chock full of creation narratives, Uh, Sumerian creation narratives, Babylonian creation, Egyptian, they had just come out of Egypt For the last few centuries, Egypt had a whole set of creation narratives. They were used to creation narratives. So when God comes and says, by the way, we talk about a lot of this in footnotes if you want to talk about different creation narratives. One of the most prominent ideas in all of the creation narratives that they were used to, all of them, because they lived in a polytheistic universe, they thought, was that the gods were angry and this creation often happened out of chance, out of conflict, out of chaos, and we're just kind of existing, trying to appease the gods because it could all come crashing down on us at every moment. So for God to speak a creation narrative that says something entirely different makes a whole group of people go, that changes everything. We thought the world was this way, and you're telling me it's this way. That changes everything, okay? So you guys ready to rock? Okay, good, here we go. Uh, In the beginning, Elohim, God, say Elohim. God created the heavens and the earth. The word for create is the word bara, say bara. In the beginning, Elohim barabbed the heavens and the earth. Now, the earth was formless and void, wild and waste. The Hebrew says, tohu vavohu. Say, tohu vavohu. Wild and waste, watery chaos. Uh, if, you put, if you take nothing and put it in a blender and hit whip, you get tohu vavohu. In the Hebrew, it's chaotic nothingness. So in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was chaotic nothingness, and darkness was over the surface of Tehom. And the Ruach, say Ruach. You got it at the end of it, okay? Ruach. Ruach of God means spirit. The spirit of God, the Ruach of God, hovered, or Merahephet, say Merahephet, over the surface of the deep, over the surface of the waters. There's a dove over in Israel. There's only one species of dove, I've been told, lives in Israel, and it hovers in one place like a hummingbird, perfectly still, but its wings don't beat as fast. It's just, um, I've seen it twice in, in my time over there, and it just sits. This is the image that they would have had of in the beginning, everything was just watery chaos, but the Ruach of God hovered over the waters. And God said, now God ends up having like this, many scholars, teachers have pointed out there is a threeness to this God character in the opening few verses of Genesis. This God is creator, 
He burrows the heavens and the earth. This God is spirit, the Ruach Merahevitz, and this God is also a God who speaks. He's also word, and when he speaks, things happen. So all of us Christian theologians sit in the room going, <laughs> that's juicy. Okay. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that it was good. And God separated the light from the darkness, the light he called day, the dark he called night. It was evening and it was morning the first day. And God said, let there be an expanse in the heavens, separating the waters above from the waters below. And it was so. God made the expanse and called it sky, separating the waters above from the waters below. And it was evening and it was morning the second day. And God said... Let the, the seas be gathered, let the waters be gathered into one place and let the dry ground appear. And it was so. God called the waters seas and the dry ground he called land. And God saw that it was good. And God saw that the land produced vegetation, seed bearing plants, and trees bearing fruit with seed in it according to their various kinds. And it was so. And the, and the land produced vegetation. Seed bearing plants according to their kind and, plant, and trees bearing fruit with seed in it according to their kind. And God saw that it was good and it was evening and it was morning the third day. And God said, let there be heavenly bodies in the expanse and the vault of the heavens in order to separate light from darkness to govern the sacred times or the seasons, the days and the years and let them separate day and night. And it was so. God made the greater light to govern the day and the lesser light to govern the night and God also made the stars. He put them in place to separate light from darkness, to govern the sacred times, days and years and to separate day and night. And it was evening, and God saw that it was good. It was evening, it was morning, the fourth day. And God said, let the sky be teeming with feathered creatures, let the seas be teeming with finned creatures. And it was so, God made the finned creatures to reproduce according to their kind, and the feathered creatures to fill the sky and the heavens according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good, it was evening, and it was morning, the fifth day. And God said, let the land produce animals. Let them produce livestock and wild animals and animals that crawl about on their bellies all according to their various kinds. And God saw that it was good and God said let us make man in our image. In the image of God let us create them. Male and female he created them and it was so. And when all this was done, God stepped, can you tell that's where my memorization ended? <laughs> when all this stuff was done, one thing led to another and God stepped back and he he surveyed all that he had made, and he said, this is tov, say tov, meod, very good. And it was evening, it was morning, the sixth day, and on the seventh day, God rested from all the work of creating he had done, and he looked at all his creation, and he blessed it, and he set the seventh day apart, and he blessed it, for on that day, God rested from all the work of creating that he had done. Now, if we're listening to the story, some things, especially in the Hebrew, I think you can even hear it in the English, but the Hebrew, it's even more pronounced. But there are these refrains that continue to show up throughout the story. First of all, there's this refrain, evening and morning. The problem is, is that's backwards. It's supposed to be morning and evening the first day, morning and evening the second day, but it's evening and morning. And why does that keep showing up like a Bang, bang, bang. This whole story has a cadence to it. This story has another cadence. It's the, it's the statement that God looks and he sees that it was good over and over again, evening and morning, and over and over again, it was 
Good, this story starts to take on this rhythmic cadence. It seems to indicate that we're not looking at a science lab report. This story is not about how creation was made. Not to any of the people who read this for thousands of years before modern day Christians got a hold of it in the last 200. This was not about how creation was made. This story was about who made creation and the nature of that mysterious creator and what he created and the relationship of that to his creator. That, this story is about the who and the what. It is not about the how. Uh, so this story is also seems to be about creating, obviously, but this story has this awkward presence of resting. So this story seems to have like this tension between creating on one hand and resting on the other because you have this divine creator resting as if he's out of like divine creativity units, as if he's just like, boy, am I tired, Woo! You're like, well, that's weird for being God. So it has this awkward kind of creating and resting tension, which makes us go back to the story, and maybe I shouldn't be reading this for its scientific value. Maybe there's a literary creation narrative genre that I need to start tapping into. So we jump to this next slide, and we start to notice, in fact, there's all kinds of other problems, too. Like God creates light, but he doesn't create the source of that light till day four, God creates plants, but doesn't create the sun the plants need to survive until the next day. And the only way we've ever measured days throughout all of human history, the only way we've ever measured days is by the relationship of the earth to the sun, which isn't created until day four, which is actually what God says he's actually making it for, which raises the question, how do we even know the first three days are even days? So this isn't about that. This story is not about that. In fact, as we start to look even closer, we notice that there are all kinds of rhythms. In fact, let's jump to the next slide. I pointed out that there was like a threeness to this God character, correct? You remember that? Bara, spirit, word. Well, at the end of the story, we also had a threeness. The word create showed up awkwardly in the Hebrew. Bara, 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 bang, bang, bang. It got this threeness. And so we start to look and we notice other patterns of three. You see, on the first three days of creation, God separates different things, different items. He doesn't create anything. Actually, go back and look at the text. He separates. He separates light from darkness out of the chaos. He separates waters above from waters below. He separates uh, land from sea. And then the next three days, God fills the things that he's previously separated. So there are all kinds of patterns of three in this story, but there's also seven days. So we would want to check and make sure that we had seven patterns of seven in the story. If this is creation narrative, if this is creation, poetic creation narrative, I would want there to be more patterns. Well, in fact, when I start looking for sevens, not only is there seven days of creation, I have to get my notes because I always screw this up, but the phrase, it was so, occurs seven times in this story. The phrase, and God saw, occurs seven times in this story. The first stanza has seven Hebrew words in it, seven times one for you math majors. The second stanza has 14 words in it, seven times two. The third stanza has 21 words in it, seven times three. God appears 35 times in this poem seven times five, and the word earth occurs uh, 35 times in this poem, seven times five. I got patterns of three and patterns of seven all throughout this story, which if I were to add the two, seven and three together, I'd want to ask the question of whether or not there's patterns of 10. Are you following me? 
Okay, good. Yeah, somebody is. That's awesome. So we have patterns of 10. We actually have the phrase to make occurring 10 times. We have the phrase according to their kinds occurring 10 times in this narrative. We have the phrase and God said occurring 10 times. Hold on. Three times in reference to people, seven times in reference to creatures. And then the phrase, let there be, occurs ten times, three times in reference to things of heaven, and seven times in reference to things of earth. This story is creation narrative. There are things going on in this story. Far Now, see, this is because this story is Eastern. If this story was Western, it would look like a blog post with three points. <laughs> Today, I'm going to talk about baloney. And I'm going to alliterate my points so that you're amazed at how well I can articulate truth. It's beautiful, it's boring, and it's bold. There we go. And we're all like, wow, this person is a genius. But in the Eastern world, they believe you don't learn truth deductively. They believe you learn truth the best when you learn it by discovery. So an Eastern author is always burying truth within the story for those that want to do the work to find it. So there are these indications that we have all kinds of things and there must be something going on. So I look at this pattern and I start to notice that in fact, it's not just separates and fills, but actually fills what was separated in corresponding order. Here's what I mean. Day four, the sun, moon, and stars is actually related to light and darkness. And then day five, fish and birds, well, that's what goes in water and sky. And day six, animals and humans, well, that's what goes on the land. Now, if you've been with real life for any stretch of time, you know that whenever you see one half of the story mirroring the other half of the story, what are we going to be dealing with? Ah, thank you very much. And so we have a chiasm for any of you people that haven't been with us a long time, and you're like, what are you doing? <laughs> First of all, welcome. <laughs> but the second thing is a chiasm is a story that if you, were to if you were to crease it down the middle and fold it up on itself, it has parallels, it mirrors each other. So in fact, Genesis 1, you can even look at your notes and see the chiastic structure. Some scholars even think it was literally written this way on a tablet or a parchment the very first time it was written down. It was prob probably even written out like baby paragraph. Day, day one is baby, day two is mommy, day three is daddy paragraph, day four is a daddy paragraph, day five is a mommy paragraph, and day six is a baby paragraph, or would be if it wasn't for the awkward creation of mankind, which seems to stick out kind of like this literary tumor in the story, like this big, like, which if you're an Easterner and you notice the chiasm, you immediately say to yourself, this story has to be about the relationship of this mankind and whatever the treasure is in the chiasm preceding it. And so you can literally count Hebrew words to find the word that lies in the dead center. Uh, let's, let's go to the next. I can't remember where I got lost. So a chiasm can be A, B, C, C, B, A. Baby, mommy, daddy, daddy, mommy, baby. Does that make sense? It can also be ABC, ABC, which means it's no longer an inverted parallelism, but it's one of diff seven different categories of chiasmus. Boom, read Kenneth Bailey, fantastic stuff. Okay, so Genesis happens to be both of those simultaneously. <laughs> so in its, literary <laughs> in its literary form, it's ABC, CBA, but in its content form, day four corresponded to day one, day five to day two, and day six to day three. 
It's, it, it happens to be both. Now let's go to the next slide. So once you find your chiasm, you can now find the treasure that's been buried at the center of the chiasm. And when we look at Genesis 1, next slide, the center of this chiasm happens to be the word moad. Mo, say moad. It used to say seasons in the old NIV. I love the new NIV's translation in your notes. It says sacred times. The word moad is the same word that can be used for festivals or feasts or it's one of four words that the Jews use for Sabbaths. Not the Sabbath, not the Sabbath, but different kinds of Sabbaths. So coming up here is the Passover. The Passover is a Sabbath. Is it the Sabbath? No, it is a Sabbath. That is what Moad references. Moad references these different parties and festivals and sacred appointed times. Okay? So this is, at the center of this is Moad, which raises the question, why is Moad my treasure? Moad is the treasure because there must be a relationship between mankind and Moad. Now let's pick up on this and figure out why this would be the case. Because who is hearing this story for the very first time? Israelites. And they've just come out of Egypt. And they find themselves at the bottom of Mount Sinai. This is charades. Mount Sinai. Okay. Now, what did they do while they were in Egypt? They were slaves. And what did they do as slaves? They built bricks or toiled, but they were brick makers uh, primarily. That's what the scriptures tell us, right? So they made bricks in Egypt. Now, when you're a slave, how many days of the week do you work? All of them. And how long every day do you work? All day until they decide to let you sleep so you can get up and do it all over again. Realize that in the Egyptian narrative, your value is tied to your productivity. You are only as valuable to Egypt as the amount of bricks that you can make. You are only valuable to Egypt if you can be a productive slave. And if you can no, no longer hit your quota, you're no longer valuable. Now, let's say you don't even buy into the Egyptian narrative. You're like, hashtag resist. <laughs> hashtag not my pharaoh. <laughs> and see, you don't even know which way I'm going with that, which is why that's brilliant. You're like, now, wait a minute. Which way was he? I don't know. I don't know. But, but, <clears throat> couldn't help myself. So, uh, what was I talking about? Bricks. So even if you don't buy into this Egyptian narrative, on a very practical level, you have to buy into it. Because if you can't make enough bricks, what are they going to do with you? They're off with your head. And then you're going to be of no use to your wife and children. And you know that they're not going to treat your wife and children well if the patriarch's no longer existent. So on a very practical level, you are only worth the amount of bricks that you can produce. When you can no longer produce bricks, this is very, very bad news for your family. So why is this lesson number one in the Bible? Listen, brothers and sisters, when God chose to write his inspired narrative, this is his first lesson. Why? Because, man, and I know this is like super old and we're so evolved and this is no longer relevant to us, but hold on. Wink. <laughs> Wink. We, God is trying to tell his people, you have come out of a world and a narrative that tells you your work and your value comes from how many bricks you can produce. I'm telling you the first lesson you have to learn is stop and know how to throw 
a party and know how to remember the goodness of creation because you are not valuable because of how many bricks you can produce. You are valuable because you are made in my image and I love you. Lesson, yeah. This is lesson number one. Let's go to the next slide. So if we revisit these refrains, why evening and then morning? Did you know that in the Jewish world, my day started last night? It did not start today. In the Western world, you wake up in the morning and say, time to start my day because it's time to start producing. In the, G in the Jewish world, you start your day when you go to bed because the first thing that you do is you rest not produce. You are not defined by what you do in the Jewish narrative. You are defined by who you are. I used to sit and watch my children, especially my daughter, my first. I used to just sit and watch her sleep. I loved it because she was her pure, unadulterated self. I just loved her so much. Does anybody know what I'm talking about? Okay? Why, why don't we think God does? So, so we have this, we have this just, just, just st evening and morning. You are valued because of who you are, not because of what you can do. You have to trust in the goodness of creation. You have to know how to stop creating and start resting because it's this physical practice that's going to inv in invite you into a much greater spiritual reality. The physical practice the physical discipline and practice of Sabbath invites me to remember and to train my spiritual self to be more aware of a spiritual reality that the book of Hebrews talked about. Go to last, last year when we preached on Hebrews and we talked about the writer of Hebrews telling people that they were invited into God's rest today. Okay? So this was this and this is why this is important, because in Christian theology, we begin our story too late. We need to begin the story where God began the story, which is in Genesis 1, but Christian theology starts the story in Genesis 3, with sin. When your fundamental identity is that you're a sinner, you are not starting the story in the right place. You're starting... <laughs> Your fundamental identity is being human, and to be human means you're made in the image of God. Now, step number two, are you a sinner? The answer is yes, but I have to put sin in its appropriate place in the story. Sin is not where the story begins, and sin is not where the story ends. This is why this is important. If I start the story in Genesis 1, it's about restoration, it's about God bringing the world back, including us, to the way that it's supposed to be. If I start the story in Genesis 3, it's about removal, getting sin out of me. If I start the story in Genesis 1, it's about who I am. If I start the story in Genesis 3, it's about what I'm not. If I start the story in Genesis 1, it's about physical participation. I'm being invited to join God in the work of creation. If I start the, start the story in Genesis 3, it's about disembodied evacuation, this world stinks, and some glad morning when this life is o'er, I'll fly away. <laughs> but the story doesn't listen. In Genesis 1, there is no other place. There's no heaven. It's just Genesis 1. 
And in Revelation 22, there's no other place. The other place came here. You see, Genesis 1 and Revelation 21 and 22 have a creation where soil and spirit are united and the broken world has pulled them apart. And most Christian theology says, yeah, let's just get rid of this one and go to that one. But that's not how the biblical narrative works. It comes here. So, oh, good news. I'm not late. Bad news, I'm not sure if you understand anything I've been talking about. Are you guys okay? Okay, good. We're going to move towards the Lord's Supper. Uh, so if our service will go back and get that ready, we have some implications to go over. But if you're visiting with us this morning, if you're visiting with us this morning, we have an open table. And what that means is that sharing this bread and this juice is one of the highlights of our week because we remember the death, burial, and the resurrection of Jesus, we want you to be family for that. If you want to join us in celebrating the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, you do that. So while they get ready to pass that out, we've got some implications to work through. Here is the first one. God declared that creation is good. Since he is the creator, he is the final authority on the matter. Doesn't matter if you agree with them, if you want to be a follower of this story and you want to trust this story or be a part of the narrative that God's telling, we have to start the story where God started it. And God said, we need to start the story with this declaration, creation is not a chaotic result of polytheistic gods in conflict. This creation narrative is about a God who loved his creation. It was like, he was like a kid going through Toys R Us. Has anybody ever had this experience? Toy, I'm kind of dating myself, but... It's probably a more modern toy story, but toy story, toy store. But it's like a kid that's like, oh, this is God in creation. Like, oh, I made this. Isn't it so cool? I made this. Isn't it so cool? Every day I get home from work, my son runs in. He plays a Galaxy of Heroes only for an hour a day. Calm down. Um, on my wife's phone, not on my phone, heck no. But on my wife's phone, he plays Galaxy of Heroes, right? Every day he comes in. He's like, look at the new guy I got. Sweet. Got Count Dooku last week. It's freaking awesome, right? Okay, so, so here's this. This is, like who, this is like what God is like. He's like, look, isn't this cool? Look what I made next. Isn't this cool? Look at what I made next. Isn't this cool? God's the creator. He gets to decide that it's good. And we don't get to be like, well, in Genesis 3 at all. Yes, in Genesis 3, it started to get pulled apart. It doesn't undo the truth of Genesis 1. Whew, okay. Okay, next invocation. So, and, and remember in January we talked about God's part, their part, our part? Okay, that's how we want to do our implications in 2017. So God's part was that he declared creation good, period. End of transmission, okay? And second is their part. How do, we, how do we let them do their part? We have to trust that others are a part of this good creation too, even your enemies, even your coworkers, or your boss, or oh, your spouse, even they are a part of God's good. They are not your enemy. In fact, they are your etzer connecto, but that's next week. They, they are the piece of you that God gave you to make the story good. I don't care which spouse, the male or the female it is. It's all the same thing. It, it, they're a part of this good creation. You do remember that God gave Adam Eve before the fall. 
Like they're not a part of the broken, they're not a part of your life's brokenness, they're a part of your life's wholeness. Ooh, Brent, that needs to be a meme. Um, Not really what I'm preaching about, but nevertheless. Next implication. How about my part? This is the hardest of all the implications. I have to trust and rest in the fact that I too am a part of this good creation. I have to quit buying into the narrative that my value and my worth comes from how many bricks I can make, that I'm not, I'm not pretty enough, I'm not educated enough, I'm not smart enough, I'm not good enough, I'm not productive enough, I'm not intelligent enough, I'm not enough. We have to stop, we have to stop, and we have to just rest, and we have to realize that God's saying, enough with that, because I made you and I love you. Not because of what you do. So you are enough, fundamentally. You are enough, and I love you as such. And we have to trust, and we have to stop producing and impressing and going and running and just stop. Moad, 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 stop. Seasons, party, festival, remember that you're loved. Oh, thank you. Okay, last implication. If this is how God chooses to tell his story, perhaps it should shape the way we tell it as well. If this is how God wants to tell his story, maybe we should tell the same story when we tell God's story. This is why we should not start the story with, hey, did you know that you're a sinner? Because that's not their fundamental identity. That's not where God started his story. It's not where we should start it any either. We should start our stories by telling people who they are, not what they're not. You are a human being made in the image of God with something to give this world. Now, yes, there is brokenness, and yes, there is rebellion and sin, but that's going to take its proper place within the larger story that God's trying to tell in your life. Sin is the intruder. It is not the definition of the story. Sin Sin is something that entered the story late and leaves the story early. It's not where the story ends, and it's not where the story begins. This dinner that we are about ready to celebrate, this supper, this Lord's Eucharist, is a declaration It's a reaffirmation of the goodness of creation. God says, I believe in the goodness of this creation and I believe in your potential so much that I will come and I will die if it will set you free to live into it. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. If I can do that for a creation that I believe, this is how much God believes in the goodness of creation. All of it. And so the The night that Jesus sat down with his disciples, he took a piece of bread and he broke it and he gave it to his disciples and he said, take and eat, this is my body. Whenever you do this, remember me. Let's remember Jesus. Later in the meal, Jesus took a cup. This is how much he believes in his creation. This is how much he still loves it, even to this day, even in the midst of everything else that goes on. Jesus took a cup, he gave it to his disciples, he said, drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant. Whenever you do this, remember me. Let's remember Jesus. Father God, remind us today. Remind us of a good story. You, You tell us four different times in the New Testament that people your faithful people, especially Abraham in the Old Testament, had, had tapped into the truth of the gospel. 
Somewhere at the root of the gospel narrative is your affirmation of the goodness of creation, a creation that would be worth saving, a creation that would be worth redeeming. I pray you would remind us of that on this day. Teach us. Proclaim it in our hearts again and again. Allow us to know when to stop, to stop and to feast and to festival and to celebrate and to be reminded that we, above all things, we are loved. God, we love you. Thank you for loving us first. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We hope you've enjoyed this message from Real Life. If you'd like more information on who we are, what's happening in our church, and how you can get involved, connect with us on Facebook and Twitter, and visit our website, liferotp.com. Also, if you'd like to dive deeper into this week's conversation, make sure to check out the accompanying footnotes podcast available in this feed.